This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority, the designated investment business, and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. It's Friday, the 16th of June. With me today, I have James Ashton. James has been a financial journalist for more than 20 years. He was city editor and executive editor of the Evening Standard, and before that, city editor at the Sunday Times. James is currently chief executive of the Quoted Companies Alliance. James is also an accomplished author. His latest book, The Everything Blueprint, which tells the story of UK technology success ARM, has had rave reviews. James, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Nick. Lovely that you're here today. Thanks so much. It's great to be invited onto the podcast. Oh, pleasure. Um, Shall we start with your background and what drove you to join the ranks of Fleet Street? Fleet Street, yes. So I was first interested in newspapers and the media. There was um, uh, competition through the local newspaper back home in Huddersfield, um, which was the Huddersfield Examiner Junior Journalist Competition. It really was um, a great way to fill a newspaper. They printed an empty grid of a newspaper, a, a tabloid version, and the challenge for individuals or for schools, teams, was, was fill it. So just to go out, talk to people in your community, type things up, find some photography, and, and, and it, was, it was addictive stuff. And, um, and I realized that, I think I got it from my dad, uh, being quite nosy, being quite inquisitive, always wanting to know what's going on, are all great skills in journalism. So I did that. I did um, something called Hospital Radio, which mm-hmm. some of your yep. listeners will remember, many won't. Um, and then when I went to university, it was newspapers rather than um, radio that won out. And then that took me after a, after a degree in English at St. Andrews down to City University in London um, for the postgraduate diploma, which is a great launch pad onto Fleet Street um, or wherever newspapers are, were, you know, were based then. Uh, I didn't initially set out to be a financial journalist, but my first job was at Reuters. And from there, you kind of write to city editors. And um, and I found great stories in the numbers and in the personalities of people running business. And then would there be some favorite stories of that, your period as a journalist, or certainly favorite characters that, that you came across? Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, you know, right at the start, so at Reuters, I was uh, on a, a specialist desk that was not particularly there doing the um, what you associate with Reuters, the snaps and the 7 a.m. R&S announcements yeah. and so on. So I was on an advertising and uh, media desk doing a lot more feature stuff and interviews. So there were really early interviews I did with a, a chap called uh, Jeff Bezos, who at the time was... Um, <laughs> never never was, heard of him. No, no, he's, and he was only selling books at yeah. the time. Uh, and of course, we, you know, no one really knew whether, whether he would be the one, but he was, um, he was pretty confident. Um, there was, you know, Martin Sorrell, uh, uh, of course. And then I'm trying to think of other people who were kind of brand led. So I remember a very early trip um, up to Luton Airport to interview Stelios about yeah. this before he'd, he'd gone across all the different easy brands. So it was just, um, just the airline at the time. And so that, that was quite 
I mean, there was a, there's a, a lot of um, ad people in Soho as well. Um, and so that was all interesting, uh, interesting stuff. And then it really got more city-ish as I went into um, some of the, into the newspapers. Yeah, and then at the newspapers, I mean, is the financial desk a desk that people want to work on? Um, I think people who come in are, are probably have a grounding in in finance anyway, so it's it's not that l- it's not so likely that you would. Um, I'm trying to think. Start on certain sections of the Daily Mail and then be switched on to onto finance. Um, but I think um, I think for a certain type of journalist, it's you know it's, it's very appealing. I mean, I f- I find business people more interesting than. Then you know they're the they're the rock stars for me as opposed yeah. to some people get excited by the um, the world beating sports yeah. stars or some some journalists absolutely obsessed and fixated with with what's happening in in Westminster yeah. and there's been plenty of that recently yes. but I think that I'm always interested you know and and th- through the years I've been whether it's been at the um, the Daily Mail, um, the Sunday Times, or, or the Standard, and then at other titles I've freelance for. Always really interested in those CEO interviews and yep. what does the CV tell us? How have they structured their careers? You know, what were the turning points for them? What was the learning? You know, I, I one question that actually led to a book was why why was I interviewing so many people who'd been grounded at Procter and Gamble yep. and they'd now become CEOs twenty years on? What was it about selling? Um, shampoo and, and, and body spray yeah. and toothpaste that meant suddenly you were CEO yeah. material. So it's really interesting to, as, as I say, piece together what, what developed their careers. And then in 20 years, was that right? You were sort of frontline Can't journalism? be that long, Nick, surely. That is more <laughs> three, four or five. Uh, it's amazing um, how quickly time goes, isn't I it? I think I was, look, I was, um, I was uh, left the Evening Standard in 2015. Um, so that was less than... 20 years but then I did I, I was self-employed for seven years so there was yeah. some journalism in there um, so I did the Quester column at the Sunday Telegraph yes. for probably three years there was some consulting uh, podcast I chaired uh, events I wrote books I got a I you can tell I did uh, I, I you know it was it was a real jack-of-all-trades yes. period but really you know really interesting and then and then if we sort of bring it to move to current day in the Quoted Company Alliance. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and, and the offering and aims and aspirations? Yeah, so I, I'm, you know, w- w- uh, what is the QCA? I mean, I, I joined last October. Um, the QCA, we're a members body, a trade group. Um, we champion the public markets. We think they're the best place for companies to raise capital, to operate, um, you know, to spread the wealth among shareholders and their staff. And we particularly champion small cap and mid cap stocks. The organization is 30 years old. Um, so I got to know it because my predecessor, Tim, asked me to chair events for them. I'd done their annual forum a couple of times and he brought me in last June to facilitate the day, the half day that they had planned um, for, uh, last June and it was in the process of that that um, he told me he was preparing to retire and there was a process and um, I was welcomed into that and isn't it always the case when you're not particularly looking for a job yeah. I didn't I didn't think I, I would ever I didn't know I didn't really know if I'd have a full-time job again mm-hmm. and um, the more I talked to them and the board and, and their and the search firm the more it seemed to appeal there was lots in common with with the stuff that I'd done 
Um, it's a great legacy. It's a very well-connected organization with what I now call the big five, the FRC, the FCA, Treasury, the Business Department, and, and the Stock Exchange. I suppose the big six now because we must talk about Her Majesty's uh, His yes, Majesty's yes. opposition. Yeah. is a very important um, uh, constituency as well. And it, was a, and it was a good team, and it's a great issue. Um, the, um, maybe because I'm, I'm immersed in it all day, every day now, it, it, it feels like it's everywhere. But I certainly think if you go below the, the macro issue, the, the cost of living crisis, yep. inflation, the stuff that's washing through into mortgage rates at the moment, and I think the next big issue right now is, is wither London, wither the city of London. And um, what is it that, that we need to do if we want to continue to have a world-beating capital market? I completely agree. And what do you think that might be? How, how, how can we continue to have this reputation? Well, I think there's, there's so many things. And, um, and this is when, because I've asked this question of, of people, and this is when they always say, well, there's no silver bullet. So there's lots of, there's lots of um, different things. Um, I think we need to, there's lots of regulatory and legislative stuff that is happening under the banner of Edinburgh reforms. And, you know, I can go through some of those if that's, if that's helpful to, to you and your listeners, and particularly because I'm always trying to get a sense of what the timeline is on this and then yeah. how all these different yeah, strands no, no, tie together. Yeah. But I think what do, what do um, coming in and talking to, to um, members, and we have 300 members, so we have more than 200 corporate members, and the rest are the advisors, which um, stretches across the nomads, brokers, yeah. um, accountants, lawyers, um, ESG consultants, search firms, PRs, investors, the whole community. And what do the companies want? I think they see the value in the public list. They see, um, for all the things I said, it's a great place to raise money and there's, um, there's something better than other ways of ownership, I think, in operating transparently in the standards that the market hold, hold companies to. So I think they see the upside. I think there's currently too much cost and complexity. Mm -hmm. It erodes that premium, and we need, to, we need to fight against that. I think there's not enough liquidity. We've seen that come off in pick, pick, pick a time period, five well, years, I, ten I, years, I, whatever. I, th I think ultimately post-Woodford. Mm. Post certainly within our, within our asset class. Mm when unfortunately many institutional investors have decided to move up the market cap scale because their risk officers decided that having large positions or larger positions in their liquid names mm. have actually caused, caused issues with their underlying clients. Mm. I, think, I think I agree. I think we've, we've tried to, to track it back and we've seen there's, a, there's an earlier decline as well, mm -hmm. but certainly Woodford... Um, was a was a catalyst i think and the third prong i think for for members is um which i think is where we can play more and and certainly i can contribute with a with a journalist background is um we just need a better narrative yeah you know one of the first pieces i you know i've tried to raise our profile not in a daft way but just in a in a sensible sort of sympathetic way i think we need a slightly higher profile to be part of this ongoing conversation and the first piece I wrote for the Times on this was, was something like the public markets are not the land that time forgot. So there is this narrative yeah. that, that, you know, we've just had London Tech Week. Growth is, growth is for private companies. It's about scale-ups. It's about Series C. It's about, you know, where's AI and all this sort of... So the, this language of growth has been 
um, appropriated by the private markets and and, mm -hmm. and and you know there's this sense I think in some quarters in the general um, people that maybe the general public or people that look at look at business or whatever that public markets there's something about these are the companies that have been left on the shelf yeah and I think it's it's absolute rubbish and there's also founders don't float also rubbish and so Absolutely. we need but yeah. but there is a sense that because of the way that that one or two high profile founders who might have had a bad ipo experience yeah. they don't want to go yeah. near london so we need we need to change all that and i think the struggle is um it's within the uk it's public versus private and it's making sure that we we show that there is that real value to um, the next step for a company growing is to broaden the investor base, is to go onto the market, is to show that you can you can you can maintain those standards and you have a great opportunity, a liquidity moment. You can invent, uh, incentivize your staff, and then the second battle, which we might come on to, is London versus New York versus yeah. Amsterdam versus versus take your pick. So I think we um, we have to talk, we have to talk a bit a bit about both. And there's yeah. I mean, I think maybe, and this is me thinking aloud, that in this environment of higher interest rates private equity transactions i think will become fewer there won't although they are you know, stuffed to the gunnels with cash currently i think i think financing transactions becomes harder with rates at five percent actually ironically cost of capital equity capital becomes cheaper than debt and you may see you know, after 10 years of, of low interest rates or 15 years of low interest rates and cheap money for private equity, which of course were f was more now financial engineering than operational mm. excellence, that actually m hopefully more companies will come to the stock market rather than selling to, to private equity because you may find they get a better valuation and a better understanding of that ownership structure. Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, we haven't seen, we haven't seen the floodgates open yet. I There's agree. only been one or two uh, this year but even you know we talked to um companies that have come to market in in the last two years or something so not particular vintage period um and they talk about the the valuations they've achieved uh, and the process has been quite positive yeah. and you know even talking to so we had our annual conference last week um and one founder CEO we had there was uh, Sarah Murray, who is a yep. buddy, yeah. big technologies. One of, one of Zeus's clients. I didn't, I didn't know that, but <laughs> I, I would say that I did. I thought I just, you know, that's product placement for you. And, well, you will know, she talks very well about the whole process. Yeah. And she's, she's quite a proponent of the public markets yeah. now, which is interesting, given that she run that company for quite a few years um, privately. But, you know, what, one of her things is, I spent so much of my time having to go round the houses, talking to everyone, raising money, constantly yeah. raising money. Yeah. And now she's doing that, that um, pretty useful thing of actually running and growing her business. Who'd have thought on the public markets, Nick? And it's very important, and we try and tell all our IPO candidates, the IPO is the start of the journey, not the end of the journey. So your valuation at IPO, you would like to think is a fair valuation. And there's a very leading fund manager who always talks about um, everyone leaving the party with a balloon. So that's that's ultimately the, the vendor, the institutional buyers, and even the advisors. So everyone gets a, a decent piece of the pie, but ultimately it's the start of the journey. It's that long-term relationship of being a listed business that hopefully will attract more people and more understanding. So unlike selling to private equity, which is a one hit, and then every three years you need to sell your business again to another private equity firm, 
I can certainly see the attraction of being listed. But then again, I would say that, I'm sure. Well, you would and I would. I mean, there's, there's no dissent in this conversation. But it's interesting listening to some of your, I think it was your previous um, conversation with Ken, Ken uh, Wooden at uh, uh, Gresham. And, there, and you talked about the point that um, this perception that public markets ha are short-termists, they have to think short-term. And I think they probably have to think short-term and long-term. What they're not thinking is, as you re refer to it, middle-term. I mean, they're not, they're not peaks and troughs. They're not, they're not, if they're being run, as you think public companies would be, they're not leading up to a sale yeah. or some sort of transaction every three to five years. Yeah. So arguably, there is stresses and strains with meeting the quarterly or half-yearly reporting requirements and, and you know, meeting expectations or even beating them. But if you can get that drumbeat right, then actually you're thinking short term, but you're also thinking very, yes, very long term. Exactly right. There's a proper strategy rather than how can I package this from, well, how can my current private equity board member who I know wants to sell us in three years time, how can we make sure we, we have a comfortable exit for everyone? And that's also the difference I find that um, listed companies do not very rarely do large institutional investors want to take board seats or can take board seats. You, know, you have to be very careful what you wish for with private equity, I always feel, because you'll have two people sitting on your board telling you how to run a business potentially that you founded. Well, I think there's an issue there as well, and, and um, you said what needs to change, and I think we're, we're taking... There's so many what you would call the supply-side changes that have been um, talked about and and coming through at the moment and a lot of it is very positive and uh, you know things like how far the FCA has moved on um, primary markets effectiveness and things like the the dual class shares and um, prospectuses and, mm -hmm. and so on that, that's all very positive I mean our concern with all of these things is um, is it pro-growth and is it proportionate you know is yeah. it is, are these rules that work for um, smaller companies that haven't got the big the big resource, the ones that the ones that want to grow, is is there enough flexibility in there? And I think given where we are at the moment with a review into primary markets, share save schemes, there is literally anything you want. Um, independent equity research, um, uh, digitization of of shareholdings, that that it all stitches together into this wonderful sort of tapestry at the end that does mean um, London is. Um, very appealing, not just for the private companies that, that might be public, but also the ones that have um, the choice across across the globe. And because home bias, as we know from where fund managers choose to invest, home bias isn't isn't there so much for the investors anymore, and it could be a bit more. Mm -hmm. And it's not really there for the companies. Yeah, um, yeah they I can mean, really. Uh, I think I think if 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 London loses its preeminence the companies that really suffer are the companies that, that we think about a lot, the small and mid cap. They're not the ones they're not the ones that can jet in and out of, of New York um, you know, without adding huge cost to their um, to their balance sheet. I suppose that mid cap and above those businesses, even though domiciled here, are really truly global businesses. The world mm -hmm. has become so small so very quickly that actually, you know, you do now have this opportunity to, to list, I think on a global exchange in your domiciled exchange isn't necessarily your primary exchange and that's why we need to to um you know work really hard to, to say that london it's interesting as, as as a business journalist you know you've I've worked over a, a number of sectors over a number of years and and w the uk got very comfortable with oh well maybe that's the last brick factory um that's closed down yeah. we don't need to make bricks anymore we can bring them in from croatia or, or whatever 
there's always been a complacency. The city of London will always be there, even when it was hated, even yeah. when it was a pariah. And it's interesting now, the, the politicians on both sides, when the question is, how do we fund the growth? I think so much of the answer they give, maybe they just give it to me, but I think they're saying it more broadly to everyone, is the, um, the public markets can help f um, fund that growth. So that's where we need to really future-proof all this. So what's the Treasury going to do about it? How does, what's the Treasury's plan? Is there, is there a plan? I mean, are they keen to, to engage with, with public markets? Yeah, I think they are. I mean, we had Andrew Griffith, the city minister, at our um, conference last week. I mean, he called, uh, I don't want to misquote him. I'm going to ap approximate the quote because I, um, I was working at the time and not taking very good notes. But he, he called public, um, public equity top of the tree. You know, he, he sees his real um, value there. Of course, he was finance director of Sky yep. um, for many years. And I think, um, yeah, they've been very focused on these... these um, supply side reforms which is the the fca um stuff around listing rules and so on the focus now really is on demand side i think it's how you get the buyers and sellers um because that's where the value differential comes from i think you see the the, the depth of liquidity in new york and you need to make sure that we have that in um, london and as you say with woodford and things the concern is that um, the institutional investors who could be investing in London are seeing greater growth opportunities in um, Vietnamese companies or whatever else. Now, I don't think we need to be sort of little Englander about it, but um, you can make a great return for your um, policyholder or whatever, uh, as well as at the margin buying British. So I think there's a lot of conversations about how you divert the flow of capital um, in whether that's um, Solvency two reforms um, or it's mandates for pension funds. Mm -hmm. or yeah. And we're suggesting things that you can do. You know, w we've got to take the best of what's worked really well over the last um, 10 years. And it's 10 years in summer since AIM shares went into ISAs. Yep. So that's been good. Um, the combination of, of tax treatment is good. We, we are working very hard to make sure that the the government and also labor understand um, why the system we've got is pretty good um, but we think there are also if you want to bring back that institutional money to small cap and micro cap you need that added incentive so can we do something learning from the vct model but maybe broaden the the range of people who could um who could invest in that yeah so it's all of those things so supply supply side demand side and then um the bit that you can't legislate for um you need a good story yes yeah but there are lots of uk companies with great stories that yeah that deserve to be that deserve to be listed it, it's the individual story but it's also the broad story of um you know life's okay on the public market yeah. and this is the challenge we have we, you know we know and the stats tell us that London is losing one public company a week. If you look across um, Maine and AIM, and I would never forget Aquis. Aquis yep. has had a, yeah, a, a yeah. great couple yeah. of years. Aquis has done an incredible job. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but but the additional companies that Aquis have brought on have not been sufficient to offset yeah. the losses yeah. on, on Maine and AIM. So that's a concern. And people aren't complacent about the London markets, and we need to use that to our advantage but at the same time you know i had two 
catch-up calls with with members today. Um, it was a, a brilliant company that's got uh, vehicle tracking mm-hmm. software that works with you know all of the big fleet managers and, and car manufacturers. Um, and what was the other one? I mean, it's a it's a diagnostics business that um, has developed uh, tests for all sorts of conditions. Down syndrome is one of them, and these these are um, you know that's just a that's just a random Friday for me, Nick, yeah. which obviously yeah. ends, ends doing a podcast with you as exactly, well. Exactly, exactly. But I guess also we've had 15 years of cheap money, um, of which has meant that technology or long duration assets have been very attractive. And a lot of those have been uh, located away from the London market. So I can see why asset allocators have allocated so much to the US market in recent times. Um, but it's the fact that those asset allocators will need to turn their focus to the UK. And I think you know, Mark Coster on a recent podcast also highlighted the fact that in the 70s, UK pension funds held 30% of UK equities. Now it's less than 5%. I think the number somewhere between 2 and 3%. Um, but ultimately, there needs to be that trust and belief that uh, the UK is a, is a good place to, to park your money, I feel. I, I, yeah, I think, I think there does. And some of that comes down to political stability exactly right as, as much as anything else I mean we haven't um, uh, you know many would argue we are still grasping for that brexit dividend yeah um, we are not yet uh, this sort of low-tax paradise that yep. we might be so there is um, That's for sure there's lots there's lots that can be done yeah but I, I think, think I, there is the broad I th- sorry to interrupt yeah. I think there is that but the broad macro piece but then there's also looking into the you know, it's just remind, reminding the world that the UK does have great ideas and I hope we're getting a bit better at um, getting them out of the lab bench or the university uh, lecture hall and, and onto the stock market. No, exactly right, exactly right. And there are, and I don't want to sound too damn beat, but there are great supporters of UK smaller companies. There are great pockets of capital. We found that retail investors have become a very important part of, oh, of, hugely. of, of, yeah. what, of yeah. what we do. Um, and there are great believers and supporters. And I, I also believe, having done this for, for many years, that there will always be money for good businesses and mm. certainly, hopefully, UK growth businesses. Mm. Um, but it is you know, just just needing to, to get the, the flywheel spinning because once that IPO window reopens mm. and we have some a couple of early successes, then I, and I think that hopefully you know, we will see more flows in, into uh, UK equities and certainly UK IPOs. Yeah, I think, and I think it's how, those, uh, how the, the market is regarded, but also how those companies tell the story. And we, we did research recently that shows if you do, retail is so important for liquidity uh, among small cap. And yeah. we, we know that those companies that really, really embrace retail um, you know, do see it yeah. in, in, in the trading figures. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's and they have the the retail element has really filled that gap that the larger funds have had to move up, as we mentioned before, the 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 risk curve, uh, and actually they've they've become a really useful asset, and actually now through many platforms and the internet, there is incredible information flow for retail investors and access to management, and maybe that. Even five years ago, there wasn't as much access to management. So, I think there's, I think there are platforms, you know, Investor Meet Company, Lumi, and others yeah. that do um, enable that. Uh, one thing we're saying, uh, there's a review on uh, bringing back equity research uh, being run by Rachel Kent, who's a lawyer at Hogan Lovells, and it, to that end about retail, we want to see 
what needs to be done with the financial promotion rules. We think that if, if retail is so important, then we need to see if um, retail investors can get the same access to research that the institutions get. You know, it shouldn't be the case that, that retailers, that retail investors are um, trading on a, on a rumor they picked up in a, in a chat room. Correct. Now, obviously, there are, there's many of you of MIFID too. Um, but certainly at my end of the market, actually MIFID II was, was created to benefit because our research is now deemed to be issuer paid. We have a much wider and broader ability to distribute it. And as such, if retail investors self-certify, they can go to our portal and download all of Zeus's research, exactly the same as any institution. So there are certainly have been some steps. I think there, in the there last are 10 there years. are ways there are ways, but we, we can see if it, yeah we'd love we'd love that to widen and pe more people to follow your example. Maybe. So what um what's the sort of the next steps for the QCA over the next sort of two years? What what are you looking to achieve? Um, I think we well we there is such a volume. I mean, I I, I think this is a um. Uh, you know, a really important year. So I am in the process of, of trying to put together, um, uh, you might grandly call it a vision or a strategy or something, but, I, but I'm conscious I don't want to spend too much time with a PowerPoint when actually um, our policy team will have, we will have a record year this, this year. We're sitting here towards the end of, in, in the middle of June. We put in our 10th uh, consultate response, consultation response in already this year. We've got nine more in the in-tray. Um, there's all sorts of other things that will pop up in autumn. So, so I, th I suppose the the vision is to get through this year and uh, see how all these th pieces of work knit, knit together. I think what we need to be is um, we need to look at how we can um, amplify that voice in government with those big five or six. But I think we also need to see what we can do. We do quite a lot. We're publishing guides and organizing workshops and things for... Um, members and directors and so on. I mean, what more can we do to help them share knowledge? Yeah. I think people see us for the guides and advice that we get, and clearly our QCA corporate governance code is um, um, is a big tool yes. for us. But yeah. I think also that we, I'm really keen that people see the QCA as a, you know, I don't want to be too naff a word, but a community. You know, we want to help to to knit people together so they can share best practice so we want to you know so i think one way in there is the neds so that so often i think between small and mid-sized companies it's the it's the neds who are kind of like the water carriers the knowledge yes. that goes from one yes. company to yeah. another and if we yeah. can help enable that then that would be that would be great yeah yeah i mean non-exit directors are, are a key part of this aren't they yeah and actually there are there are an array those that have industry knowledge those that have financial knowledge those that have um, city knowledge. I mean, it's a very important part of, of helping boards, I think, mm. and, and growing the, their stories. Yeah. Now, can we move to the Everything Blueprint? Which I have to say, I read, I read this week. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It has a Walter Isaacson vibe for me. Um, I know you mentioned him in relation to, to Jobs in uh, uh, Jobs's biography. Um, but it really reminds me of his book, The Innovators. I don't know if you've read that. I haven't read that one, but uh, you know, I'm basking in all this praise, uh, Nick. So obviously, I have to go and read that one and, and remind myself how good it is. No, it's <laughs> a, it is very kind. No, no, it's a great story. So this is the story of Arm, um, a great British technology success. Um, you know, anyone that's been anywhere near the stock market for the last ten to fifteen years will certainly have heard of Arm. 
do you want to talk a little bit about you know, how the book came about, why you, why you wanted to talk about ARM, and then we can talk about um, you know, what ARM might do next? Yeah, that's, that's, where, my, that's where all my intro, interests collide, isn't yeah. it? Um, so I'd done a couple of books before, and I wanted to... So books are... It's a big undertaking. And so I wanted to do... Um, I, I prefer... I, I think with business books, nonfiction, there's kind of the ideas books and there's what you might call a corporate history. And I really favour the corporate history. So I was looking around and thinking, what next? I've done a couple of these. I know what it is now just about to pull together 80,000 words and they can kind of make some kind of sense uh, because that in itself is quite a step up from the two and a half thousand page five piece in Sunday Times Business. Yeah. And so what's the biggest corporate story in Britain of the last generation that is high tech and very, very international? Yeah. And there aren't that many in that respect. You, you can compile a list and, and look around and think, I mean you know the 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 you know possibly Vodafone but it's it's not got a very good ending mm-hmm. um and I think with ARM I've written about them I wrote a lot on media and tech and telecoms uh, I've been up to Cambridge I've interviewed um all the all the CEOs they've only had four yeah and um and that idea came around and then we were we um that was around lockdown time I was thinking about that so it's a few years ago and then semiconductors, microchips went on to all the front pages because there was this great shortage. Yes. The, um, everyone wanted more devices. Some of the factories shut down. And there was a realization from whether it was Trump or Biden or whatever that actually, um, you know, a chip going for a dollar um, was the reason that you couldn't um, get your, your PS5 for Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I love the idea of ARM and then to try and weave it into where, where, what is this supply chain? Where does ARM sit in this ecosystem? And um, how, did it, how does it get there and stay there? Because you might notice it in the book, Nick, there's sort of, there's quite a lot of rising and falling empires. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that, that really fascinated me because you think, you think now where we are with the, with the, the social media giants, you know, you, you know how, how, will, how will Facebook, how will Meta, how will Google ever be toppled? But then you look back and you see what Intel is now versus what it was in the 80s and 90s. And then you think about Nokia. And um, that was really interesting to me. And, and one well, thing... Well, even, uh, even Wolfson. Yes, know, yeah, absolutely. Wolfson absolutely. Or imagination, I mean... And one thing that Arm did, and if it's worth explaining, so um, Arm has a, a, an instruction set architecture. It's a, it's a digital rule book that effectively it supplies ready to, if, if you think of a, um, a ready to use floor plan um, for a uh, microchip. And, and these are sorts of, mixing my metaphors, building blocks that because the whole process of design and manufacture is so expensive, this whole supply chain is splintered and you bring in specialists to do different parts and so rather than designing everything from scratch get a bit of arm off the shelf or something and the fact is that these floor plans now it's not a you know none of these microchips are um penthouse apartments they're not one floor they're dozens and dozens of of stories so you you bring in arm and um the rule book if you like um they keep adapting that uh, I think there are, what do I say, several thousand, it's true, whatever I said, it's several, there's several thousand rules, um, but basically there's billions of, um, 
of computations yes. off the yeah. back of that. And there are uh, 13 million one three software engineers working with this language, if you like, around the world. So there has been lots of different ways of, of using it across um, smartphones, most famously, but also now data centers, cars, laptops, industrial centers, uh, uh, industrial sensors, and used 1,000 times a second. And, and the book really brings to life the innovation. So obviously, my favorite, one of my favorite bits was about the thumb, and how and how actually, obviously. Yeah, the the issue with the power supply and the capacity, and ultimately by by putting half the chip to sleep at part gave you greater greater energy and greater, greater power, shall I say? And um, you know, of course, calling it the thumb because that was the end of the arm. Is that the right? useful bit at the end of yeah, the arm. Yeah. Right. Well, that was a really and the th and the thumb extension, um, which was the idea of uh, uh, of Dave Jagger, who was a um, who got to know the arm, who's brought up in New Zealand and, and got to know about arm because um, there were early, the, the Acorn Electrons and the BBC, the BBC Micro, I think it was, was, was sent over to his school in, um, in uh, Christchurch, I think it was. And the, to adapt what arm had developed and to say, well, actually, we've, we've got to really um, do a handbrake turn here, guys. Uh, and to say that just a, a few years in was quite a brave thing to do. But, yeah. it, but it was that adaptation that really got them into the Nokia phones and people ascribe the 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 success of arm the birth of arm goes back to apple um wanting a, a better processor yeah. for a, a long forgotten device it was coming up with but actually getting into the Nokia was um was the moment and actually also reminded me uh, the, how forward-thinking the UK government was at that time to decree that the BBC Micro, that there'd be this national programme that children would have computers at school. I mean, it was quite revolutionary for the early 80s, I would have thought. I think it was. I mean, we had the highest penetration of, of computers in, in the world for a while and the, lit, the computer literacy. And you, you still see that the, the legacy of that early distribution of, of home computers and the school's computers, you still see it. In, that's the reason we're good at uh, computer games, yeah. among, among other yeah. things. Um, I think there were two things. So the, the BBC wanted to do, um, it was called the computer, computer Literacy Programme. They wanted a TV series to um, demystify home computers to kids, to, to everyone in the early 80s. Three channels in 1982, yep. whatever it was, captive audience. But the, and there were something like 300 home computers on the market. There was the Commodore. There's all sorts of Yeah, we had a from. VIC-20. And they, um, they weren't happy with any of them. They said, if we're going to do this properly, the BBC needs its own computer. Yeah. So they commissioned a company called Acorn yeah. to make their computer. And then around the same time, the Thatcher government said, computers for schools, 50% discount if you for any school that wants to buy them. And they decreed, we wherever possible, we, we, we chose two models. We want them homegrown. Yeah. So it's very interesting yeah. that that was, we talk about, you know, buying British with, um, with equities now. And, and if, if it wasn't for the, the money that Acorn amassed from um, that computer buying program, they wouldn't, have had, they'd have, they wouldn't have lasted so long, but they wouldn't have had the money, and it wasn't that much money, to throw at the... Um, the, the processor design that became ARM. Exactly right. And of course, don't forget, Acorn, Acorn floated, had a very sort of tortuous couple of years listed, didn't it? And then, uh, and then it yeah, was no more. Olivetti, is that right uh, from memory? Bought well, um, uh, I, should have it, I should have it open so I can remember the years. So I think it was, um, they, um, they 
underestimated demand in Christmas 83 and overestimated demand in, in Christmas 84. And I think Olivetti bought in in about February 85. Yeah. Um, but they also bought, but then Olivetti bought in again in, in uh, later on that year. So Acorn was controlled from Olivetti from, from pretty early on. And then I think, like all good stories, a little bit of luck helps. And the relationship with Apple, I think, is it certainly went a long way to to put them on on the international map i think it did but it was it wasn't really one relationship and it wasn't particularly linear yeah so they invested because they wanted because they didn't want to trade with a competitor Mm -hmm. and for a time acorn had been a home computer competitor to apple acorn had gone to the states apple had come to the uk and so they were they were they were um, sparring and they were discounting against each other. Hence, hence the need for the name change. Well, it was. I mean, it was, uh, you know, what, what was Acorn Risk Machine became uh, Advanced Risk, risk yeah. uh, Machine uh, Arm and so on. So that they spun the company out um, and the product they used the processor for didn't really amount to much. Um, in fact, they made far more on the shares of Arm than they made on the, the device. But interestingly, the 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 relationship that really kind of the the modern relationship that that forged that that was forged a lot later on was the decision to use um the arm technology in the um which one was it the ipod Mm -hmm. and apple still had a residual shareholding in arm when that decision was taken but the shareholding had nothing to do with it they picked it up because the arm had been used i think in a in another music player, an, an MP3 player, yes, and that, the, the that's when they took. That's like when that. they, that's when they took that. But it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, it, so, so the initial relationship was was actually struck when Jobs wasn't at the company because yes. he was cast out yeah. and then came back again. Yeah. And then the iPod decision, which was probably taken. I mean, it was taken below his below his level. Um, Tony Fidel, who has ever since called himself. And is called by others, probably rightly, the father of the, the godfather yeah. of, the, of the iPod. Made that decision, and once you're in the iPod, then there was a continuation through the um, um, through the the iPhone and the iPad, despite other people trying to to displace them. But yes, it's a it's a really really valuable um, relationship, and to this day, um, because the Apple have a special license to amend the uh, ARM rulebook. In so a way that many customers don't. So I was going to mention, I mean, you write, and it really comes alive, actually, about that meeting or the, the, the threat of the conference call and not really knowing what was happening. Of course, it was a, a, a request to, to actually have open the architecture, the sort of the underlying DNA of, of ARM that Apple would have access to. And I think, again, that cemented the relationship even further. Well, it was. and it, I mean, and that chapter opening, by the way, is is... You do sweat blood for those. Yeah, because you, do. You, go, you, what, do. you because because people will say to you, "Well, the, you're just being a journalist about this." You know, there weren't there weren't flashes, there weren't moments in time. Things happen very slowly, and lots of people are involved. But but April two thousand eight, there was a phone call, yeah, which was great. Warren East, who was a CEO at the time, really dreaded it because you've re- referenced them already. A few weeks earlier, Wolfson um, had been ditched by exactly, Apple, yeah. and the shares had tanked and he thought they were they were going the same way but actually apple wanted a much tighter relationship it was 
it was party time, yeah. really. And, and, and ever since, that was 08. That was the beginning of what um, all of these big companies do now, which is the custom silicon. They all realized that leaving the, um, the chip design to anybody else was too risky. Yeah. So they brought it all in-house. And Apple probably has four to 5,000 chip engineers internally now. And then another part of the book that I really enjoyed was um, you know, the way you explained Masayoshi san from SoftBank, actually. And would it be worth sort of just commenting on, on their involvement? And actually, in a way, the way you wrote it, he um, had quite a lot of thought, ultimately, and vision about his arm acquisition. I think he did. I mean, to, 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 to go backwards with it. So, uh, you know, ha has, the, has the SoftBank acquisition of ARM been successful? Um, because there was a lot of, the, there's a lot of mudslinging during the first few years. What on earth is he doing? What are they, what are they bother, bothering with and so on? And the figures that we see coming out of the company now, and they're still they're in the quiet period at the moment, but you can see a real uptick in trading. So I think because ARM is such a long, long-term business, um, I think you can certainly say that the ownership um, by SoftBank, which is now seven, well, seven years in autumn, yeah. has not been a failure. Yeah. So I think he did see he did see um, something. Um, the trend he was really fixated on Internet of Things, yes. which is the yeah. the chips embedded everywhere yeah. and all talking to each other. I mean, um, that was very a big thing seven years ago, right? So it was, yeah. but it was also, it, and, it, and it's kind of there now. Yeah. But like most of these trends, it um, takes longer than anybody thinks. And then when it happens, it happens really quickly. Yes. There's, a, yeah. um, there's a quote about that or something. I can't remember. Uh, you know, how do, how do you go bust gradually? Very and then, slowly, yes, then very then, quickly. Yes, yeah. exactly. And I think that's, with, that's the same with some, with some tech trends. So we did see that. Actually, what he did get wrong and, you know, he's an entrepreneur, they're, they're allowed to get things wrong, is he tried to build another business, which I reference in the book, kind of on top of or to the side of ARM. It was a really about, it was a data business to try and capitalize on all the information that these, um, these embedded chips in all the tiny devices threw off. And that was not really ARM's core thing, and it was taking far too long, yeah. and it, it's kind of been folded back in somewhere. But, but, but yeah, he has vision. He had money, he had vision. He... he um, he is a bit of a kid in the sweet shop. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had no idea. That, I mean, he was educated at Berkeley. Uh, he had this desire and interest in electronics from a very young age. So it was a passion for him rather than just a, uh, a wealthy investor, I felt. And that's how it came across for me in the book, at least. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he, he, was, he says he was interested in all these things early on, so the early Intel chips and so on. So I think through the... What was I mean? He'd done other all sorts of things, inclu including um, trade shows, and then got into internet with Yahoo, and then steered towards mobile with Vodafone in Japan and Sprint in the U.S. And then I think, as he observed how the growth for all those mobile platforms was taking off, he was very much drawn to the devices, and then what is powering the devices, and so so. He alighted on on arm, but what's interesting is he. Um, he this is the man with a three hundred year vision. Yeah, and um, he was prepared to trade that company 
within a few years. Four years, wasn't it? I think yeah, you're right. Yeah. And actually, we'll come on to that in a second. But but anyone that carries a picture of an Intel chip in their backpack as a kid, I mean, you are maybe is a little bit questionable. I mean, look, that's that that is this that you know clearly I wasn't there back in the seventies, yeah. so I couldn't source it to the backpack and 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 so on. But it's it is what it is what he has said about himself, and you ha- I think you have to take that as read. But yes. And then you're quite right. I'd, I'd forgotten about a bid from Nvidia, a name which has been in every on everyone's lips for the for the sort of last month or so, on the back of this belief that AI is is finally taking off. But uh, I mean, yeah, he was planning to sell it four years later to Nvidia. I think yes. I mean, that was that was the idea, and I think I think selling is he he would have had a a chunky stake in the combined company. But that was that was the idea. I think you know he is a buyer and owner of assets, but I think sometimes reality intervenes. And what was interesting to me going back and researching the the time and the place. I mean, even you know every quarter now, SoftBank is um, uh, you know marking to market, and the losses are there's, there's yeah. a, lot, a lot of losses that they're yes. that they're putting through. But SoftBank had investors had debt concerns about SoftBank. Um, in the months before he bought Arm, I mean, he was meant to be. He, he had he had said they just sold um, the Clash of the Clans mm-hmm. company. Uh, I'm going to say Superscape, but it's not that one, is it? It's the the fin- anyway the Finnish Games company um, because they had to pay down the debt. And then he turned around and went, "Oh, well, sorry, I'm I'm going to buy Arm instead." Yeah. yeah. So he is. I think he's a he's a um, fascinating character and. Arm is now his most valuable asset. And what happens next for Arm? Well, I mean, we've, we had... Um, they were the Saudi Aramco of, of, of modern times, weren't they? Mm-hmm. I mean, the UK government was, um, was rolling out the red carpet to get them to, to list in London. And I think the, um, I think the carpet wasn't ready, um, unfortunately. Um, there was there was a bit of miscommunication. Um, it was mainly it was wholly about um, related party transactions, yes. which actually, a few months after Arm said we're going to New York, guys, the FCA is now addressing related party yeah. transactions. So there's eyebrows r- the the there have been eyebrows raised over that. And Arm has said you know there's a possibility of a of a of a secondary listing yeah. here at some point. But yeah, I think what they do is is they. Um, they'll look to list on NASDAQ probably in September. Interesting. And and the question then is, what is this asset worth? Yes. And of course, people over here will be saying, well, have you have you got a better price mm. there than here? So it's very interesting because it, because it's not it's not a classic growth stock. In this is not going to be thirty forty percent top line growth um, that the U.S. investors are going to get. And actually, it will also be. Um, a pretty mid-size, yeah. Given it's yeah. you know it's clearly not going to be a, a trillion. I think at the the best they're talking about it could be eighty billion dollars. But it does have a very, very stable annuity stream of royalties, which will have a great value and for the equity investors, I'm sure. Yeah, I think so. And and actually, it it is it is it is steady, but actually those volumes have. Uh, doubled in six years, mm-hmm. so they are now, I say, a, a thousand times a second, Nick, because it's just 
makes it sound a bit sexier, but it is 30 billion. Their, their um, processor designs are licensed 30 billion times a year. Yeah. It's incredible that it started started from a very soon. It was above a shop in Cambridge or, or whatever the, the well, genesis was. Yeah, by the time Arm started, they were they were out at um, Cherry Hinton in the waterworks, and actually they left for the famous famous in my book famous barn. Yes, um, eight miles out, and then because they outgrew that, they moved back and displaced Acorn in about. 94 and they've been there ever right. since so they're still on the um on the same site but the way i think of the their royalties it took them it took them 12 years to be licensed a billion times and now they are licensed a billion times every 12 days unbelievable unbelievable it truly is a, a uk technology success yeah, I think I, I, I think it is, and the people will say, "Oh, well, is it still British? Is it really is it, you know, the management of, are in the states?" And I think there is a there is a bit of that. the The secret of arms success is that when the twelve men and the CEO Robin Saxby went to the barn in 1991, they knew they had to be international from day one. Um, so they were on the on the plane, largely to yeah. Asia. Where are the customers? And I think it's it still is an international company now. The global headquarters is in Cambridge. It's 2,800, very well-paid, very clever staff. And, and if that's what a British champion looks like, if you've got other big units around the world, then I think we need to take that. I think Saxby plays an incredible pivotal role in that because he'd had this sort of international sales career, I felt, that you know, probably brought that experience to, to arm. He could have sold um, coal to Newcastle, yeah. I think. Yeah. The, finally, the great, great little story about a client and offer a Chinese meal and actually him taking his mother-in-law as well because she happened to be staying with him. He, he did. He did. Um, he did all sorts. He did all sorts. Now, and he, he's I mean, he's, he's still so energetic um, now and he was a real um, help in this. James, thanks very much for the time. I'm very wary of time. Now, as my regular listeners know, I'd like to close on three questions. So if we can take one at a time. Your greatest inspiration or mentor? I mean, uh, if I was asking that from someone, I would want one name, and I just I'm going to disappoint you because I think it's just um, people I've collected on the way who are who are great sounding boards and give me um, tough love when I need it. So it's people like uh, my old boss at the Sunday Times, John Waples, who was very very direct and had absolutely no qualms about ripping up pages I produced at a moment's notice, and he was probably usually right. Um, and then people like Guy Lawrence, who's a good friend and he used to run Vodafone in the UK and just finished running Chelsea Football Club, mm -hmm. who is also very direct. Excellent. And a book which has inspired you? Um, I think the books, the books I, I inspired, I mean, I, I look at books, you know, if I look at a book as, a, as a, a writer of books now, I'm kind of inspired by who has told a, a just a beautifully turned story, who's got me into the room, Who's got the detail? Who's t who tells me what they're eating for lunch? What the guy's wearing? Um, you know, what painting is on the wall and that sort of thing. So I think it's the that that's they're the ones that either inspire or um, depress me when I'm writing one. So I think two that I would pick out that I think are fantastic. It's Philip Auger's book about Barclays, the bank that lived a little, which arguably Barclays is the great corporate soap mm -hmm. opera of the UK. It's a great book, um, and I think also Patrick Radden Keefe. Empire of Pain, which the 
um, the Sackler opioid yes. story yeah. that yeah. just, uh, you know, the, the way he can pull back the camera and sort of re- rewind you an extra 30 or 40 years is is genius and that they're both great reads. Yes, the first part of that book is incredible. The sort of detail, you're right, you go back to the start. And it? you think, why am I in 1920? Yes. Yeah, but you and feel then, like you are. In and, then I, and then I, d- I like to l- look at the workings. So I go into the acknowledgements or the sourcing, and and um, you know you're you, you're kind of writing on top of what had gone before in in the way that he was working off a little known autobiography of the wife of one of the yes. brothers or something, yes. and that's yeah. where you get the detail of all sorts. So yeah. it's, it's just lovely writing and lovely research. No, I've I've, I've read it. It's a great book. And then what piece of advice would you give to a young person starting their career to follow in your footsteps? Um, it's something like just ask. Because um, if you don't ask, you don't find out. Yep. And I think people, whether it's been when I was starting out and I was writing letters for work experience or whether it was when I left the standard and want advice on what to, um, what to do next, I think there are always good people who will find half an hour for a coffee and sit down and say, yeah. well, what are your problems? And, and this, this could be the way forward. So just ask. Well, that's a great, great advice. And how can listeners get in touch with you? Uh, I, m- my colleagues might um, uh, point out that I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. So that's a very easy way. Um, or, of course, at the QCA. And, or check out all that we're doing at theqca.com. James, this has been really enjoyable. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for listening to Different Perspective, a Zeus podcast. If you'd like to feature on the podcast or get in touch, you can contact me on live at zeuscapital.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.